We're in the middle of a series uh, that we've uh, very creatively called Summer Psalms. You can see where we got that from. And Psalm 1 has often been described as the gateway into the book of Psalms. It's no accident that this psalm is the first psalm because it tells us how to use the rest of the psalms and really how to use the rest of the Bible. And so in some ways it may have been fitting to have done it at the beginning of our summer psalms. But I think there's actually a a real appropriateness in this psalm this morning as we look ahead to something of a new term together, something of a new year together as a church. This psalm is a bit of a gateway for us as we enter into a new season of church life. So uh, what I'd like to do is read it. Uh, Please follow along with me as as you look in your Bible. Let me read it to you and then we're going to unpack what God is saying here this morning. I'll read the whole psalm, but we're really just going to focus on the first half. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, it's it's not New Year, I know, but in many ways I feel like a summer break is a bit like the start of a new year. September can feel like the beginning of a new year and a fresh start. And traditionally, with the talk of any kind of fresh start, people sometimes talk about resolutions. We do New Year's resolutions, but I do wonder whether some of us in our minds also do September resolutions. Looking online, I found the list of the top 10 resolutions that people tend to make at various times of year, which could be on some of our minds already for September. Uh, You can probably imagine the kind of things that are on this list. A lot of them relate to health and fitness and learning new skills and getting out of debt and those kind of things. Each one of them is intended to bring some measure of real improvement to our lives. They each seem to promise some small measure of improvement in health or energy or happiness or security. But here's the sad truth in all of these lists that I was looking at. There was one resolution missing that really would top all the rest. It would surpass all of the rest in its power to bring real and lasting blessing into people's lives. And yet this this one thing is missing from all of the lists online. This one thing blows all other resolutions out of the water. And this one thing is in this psalm this morning. This psalm is an invitation to come and delight ourselves in the word of God. This psalm promises the very blessing of God in our daily lives. I'm sure you'll agree that sounds worth exploring and so we're going to explore it today. We're going to do it under three headings. First of all we're going to look at the promise of blessing, secondly the way of blessing and thirdly the practice of delight. First of all the promise of blessing. Psalm 1 begins by telling us that happiness is possible. That's what this word blessed means at its simplest level. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. 
And in the Hebrew, the word is a plural, uh, which in my simple understanding of the English language means it would have an S on it in English, or an ES. Uh, I'm not sure how it looks in Hebrew, but the plural, it's a way of intensifying the word. As if the psalmist is saying to us, oh, the blessedness of the man. Oh, the happiness that is his. Oh, what blessedness is upon this man. Or, or maybe the stress is on how many blessings are on this person's life. Oh, the blessedness is of the man. This man's happiness is not a superficial happiness. His is a joy that abides deep down inside him. A deep contentment that is untouchable and abiding. It's a blessedness that can say at all times and in all circumstances, it is well with my soul. And then to help us better understand what this blessed happiness looks like, the psalmist presents us with the picture of a tree. The blessed man, the blessed woman, he says, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Now we mustn't misunderstand, life isn't necessarily easy for this tree. It's still subject to all the different seasons. Sometimes it will go through bitterly cold winters or uh, dry, hot, drought-ridden summers. It will still experience many of the hardships that other trees experience. It still faces many tears and sorrows and difficulties. And yet this particular tree is not like the other trees in one significant way. Its leaf never withers. This tree cannot die. It continues to be fruitful and to grow. And so the question I hope we're already asking ourselves this morning is, what is it that makes this tree and this man so unwitherable, no matter the season or the circumstance? And the answer is simply this. Uh, This tree is planted on a riverbank. Its roots have access to a constant stream of life-giving water coming to it, to its roots under the ground. Streams of water that refresh its roots even when the heat rises, when circumstances turn dire, even when drought and tragedy strikes. That's the promised blessing that Psalm 1 holds out to us. A blessed and fruitful contentment, an inner unshakable joy that's sustained in every season and circumstance. Because in the end, what's going on inside us doesn't depend on our external circumstances at all. For this tree, it depends on an unseen source of life that flows deep down around its roots. And the same can be true of us. Our lives can depend and should depend on an unseen source of life that flows deep down into our roots. Now, I just... Let me invite you to think just for a moment about what that would mean for the coming weeks and months and even years ahead. The remaining years of your Christian life and my Christian life in all that lies ahead. Think about what this means. True blessedness, which is the deepest kind of joyful contentment, can't be found in what may or or may not happen to you or what might go on around you. It doesn't depend on whether you get that new job you're hoping for or whether you lose the job that you've currently got. Whether you find a, 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 a new, close, intimate relationship or you lose your closest relation. Whether this autumn, this coming year, you get fitter and healthier or slower and heavier. Or even 
and whether you get a cancer diagnosis to say that you're not going to live to see out this year. True blessedness and contentment isn't shaken by those things, isn't shaped by those things, doesn't come from those things. True blessedness is found deep down where our roots are. It's found in an unchanging source that the psalmist is now going to describe for us. Uh, So second heading this morning, let's now look at the way of blessing. This is verse 2. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Here's the way of blessing. Here's the secret of this man's blessedness. Here's where his roots go deep down into. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In the Bible. In the word of God. His delight is in all that God says. Trees grow strong on riverbanks. Christians grow strong on the riverbank of God's word. And this here is the language of a person who has been enraptured and enthralled by the beauty of God's word. He doesn't just read God's word. No, he treasures it. He prizes it. He loves it and praises it, feasts on it and drinks from it like it's the most refreshing fountain in the world. You see, the world around him, his circumstances, they they might be dry and barren. They might be incredibly difficult. A hot and tiring wind might be beating down on him, but because he's planted beside the stream of God's word, he can sink his roots deep down into it and find the deepest of all delights in it. And so he can draw life and refreshment and blessing from the God who speaks through its pages. Now what's important to stress here is that the delightfulness of the Bible is not something that we ever have to muster up and bring to it. I really want to make this distinction this morning. The Bible, God's word, is in itself inherently delightful. Uh, To explain what I mean, let me give you an example, first of all, from the natural world. Uh, Psalms like, um, or passages like Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that the natural world around us is just full, chock full of majesty and beauty. The world around us is inherently delightful because God has designed it to display something of his glory. Just to give a couple of examples, take snowflakes for instance. Uh, I think have got one on the screen here. When you put a snowflake under a microscope, you discover that each and every one is the most incredible work of art. Like a delicate glass sculpture, so small that the human eye can, can hardly even see it. Certainly we don't see it like that, do we, when all of the snow is falling? Apparently every snowflake that has ever fallen in the history of the world is unique. Every single snowflake that's ever fallen is unique in shape and design. Every snowflake that has ever fallen is uniquely delightful, whether or not human eyes see it or not. And God crafted every single one of them. Or take something much bigger. Mentioned last week on our youth camp a couple of weeks ago, we were in part, learning about the stars, the greatness of the stars. And even here in our own Milky Way galaxy, there are stars that are inconceivably big. One of them, called Eta Carina, burns five million times brighter than the sun. Five million times. Can anyone even get their heads around how bright that is? Uh, We don't look at the sun, do we? Our sun, it's too bright. Five million times brighter. Cannot fathom it. What does that tell us? 
tells us that our God is capable of making things of the most exquisite beauty and brightness. Things that have in themselves a delightfulness that is beyond our wildest dreams. Things of mind-blowing beauty and brilliance. Things that manifest and display something of his glory. But these things I'm describing, they're just a part of his natural revelation. This book is his special revelation. Meaning that it is immeasurably more beautiful than every snowflake that ever fell, infinitely brighter than every star in the universe put together. Forget the snowflakes and the stars for now. This is the place where God's glory shines the brightest. In here, God reveals his will, his thoughts, his holy law and perfect character. In here, he gives us his good commands and promises. Promises that lead not to death, but to life everlasting and full of glory. And in here, we see Jesus. This book is full of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And its light is just waiting to burst forth from its pages before our very eyes and ears and hearts each day. You just can't find this level of glory anywhere else in all of the world. Not looking through a telescope at the stars. Not looking through a microscope at the snowflakes. But we are invited to come and witness it in here, day and night, as often as we are willing. Which I think is really good news especially during those seasons when we feel like delight is the furthest thing that we can dredge up in our own hearts to bring to the Bible. If delight is something that we have to always bring to the Bible ourselves to muster up delight in our own hearts before we come, then that is a burden, not a help, especially in times of dryness and weariness. But on the other hand, if this book is inherently delightful, And if it promises to impart delight to even the weariest soul who is willing to open and read, then that is a prospect full of help and hope for every one of us. The blessed man's delight arises from what he repeatedly finds that God has stored up for him in this book. So what does all of this mean in practice? How should we approach the Bible? That's what I'd like to answer under our third and final heading this morning. The psalmist goes on to describe the practice of delight. The practice of delight. How practically does the psalmist pursue daily delight in the pages of God's word? Well, he says, on his law, he meditates day and night. On his law, he meditates day and night. Now, there are, of course, all sorts of good ways for us to engage with God's word. And I'm sure the psalmist did this too. Uh, Reading it for breadth, studying it for depth, memorizing portions of it, working hard at applying it into our hearts and our lives. But I think the reason that meditating on God's word is especially highlighted here is because meditation plays a vital role in causing our Bible delight to grow. As one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson, once said, he said, the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Meditation is a place where we warm ourselves at the fire. To meditate on the word is to periodically stop shoveling more and more logs onto the fire and to instead warm ourselves at a nice log or two that have already been placed there and which are starting to catch light. 
The Bible's idea of meditation then is the very opposite of what um, so many people and, and other religions tend to think of as meditating. It's not an emptying and a cleansing of our minds from all thoughts. Quite the opposite. It's a filling of the mind with the words of the Bible. It's immersing our minds in what God has said. Meditating, as the psalmist describes it, is bathing our minds in God's truth. Even talking to oneself to help it sink in. I know this is perhaps supposed to be one of the first signs of madness that you talk to yourself. But the Hebrew word here for meditate is onomatopoeic. So when you say the word meditate in Hebrew, it sounds like a low voice murmuring or muttering under its breath. Now these days, it's often only children that learn to read aloud. Uh, they learn to read out loud. And then as we get much older, we move to silent reading and we consider ourselves we've grown in sophistication. Um, but back in the psalmist day, reading out loud in a low voice to yourself was the normal practice. And maybe there's real wisdom in it. If you haven't tried this much in your own Bible reading, let me encourage you to give it a go. It's quite striking what a difference it can make sometimes to just simply speak God's word aloud as you sit down with it open before you. But whether we read it silently or, or aloud, meditation involves an active engagement with God's word. It's not just letting it, our eyes scan over it and not taking it in. To meditate is to reflect on what God says and to knead it into our hearts. It's to chew on a particular morsel, a particular truth, until we begin to feel it nourishing our hearts. David Mathis says this. Uh, he, he's written a wonderful book called Habits of Grace and touches on this theme. He says, meditation is feeding our minds on the words of God and digesting them slowly, savouring the texture, enjoying the juices, cherishing the flavour of such rich fare. Man does not live by bread alone, and meditation is slowly relishing the meal. And the psalmist here is describing a person who does this day and night. This is not meant to be something occasional or sporadic. It is to be regular and frequent. God's word is meant to be in our minds, present in our conscious thoughts throughout each and every day. It's meant to be increasingly woven into the very fabric of our lives, shaping how we think and uh, think and face every new situation. It's meant to be saturating our lives, fueling our affections, empowering us with a strong and steady supply of God's grace to help keep us going and keeping on growing. But if we're, if we're going to be honest here this morning, and I want to be honest, oftentimes a whole variety of things get in the way of me and I, I suspect you uh, of you and I delighting in God's word in the way the psalmist is describing. Every day we come up against uh, some fairly formidable obstacles to this kind of Bible delight, or at least they can seem very formidable. And so before we finish this morning, I just want to have us briefly consider three of those most common obstacles. The first one maybe is the one that perhaps comes to your mind, first of all, busyness and distraction. Busyness and distraction. General busyness and daily distractions are just so common obstacles to delighting in God's word. Whether they get in the way of us even getting around to opening God's word at some point in the day, or whether they keep us from thinking back on the little bit of God's word we did read in perhaps in the morning throughout the day. 
The solution to both busyness and distraction, I think, lies primarily in reminding ourselves of the incomparable worth of God's word above all other duties and pleasures that life has to offer us each day. The, the, the solution to this really is to think back on the things we've just been talking about. The incomparable worth of God's word. Meditating on it and delighting in it is even more important than those important jobs and errands and projects and housework that might lay before us each day. And it's immeasurably more refreshing and delightful than even the best hobbies, activities and entertainment that we might give ourselves to each day. In fact, it's even more vital and essential than the things that we might rightly do each day to serve other people. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha was doing a really good thing in serving her house guests, but still Jesus reminded her that it was Mary who had chosen the better portion of sitting at his feet and first of all, listening to him. So remembering the worth of God's word, remembering that there is treasure on every page, really is a powerful remedy to those obstacles of busyness and distraction that will keep rearing their ugly heads each day. But I want to touch on two more obstacles as well. And these next two, I, I want to mention them because they, I think, have roots that are stronger and go deeper into our hearts than the first one. They, they, these things can have a more destructive grip on our hearts than just busyness and distraction. So the obstacle number two is this, dryness and dullness. Sometimes God's word can honestly just seem dry and dull and unappealing to us. Many other things seem far more desirable and pleasurable in comparison to it. And when that happens, and it happens to me on a regular basis, what we need to recognize in that moment is that the problem is not with God's word. The problem is with our eyesight, the eyes of our heart. Imagine for a moment if you meet me one day Beautiful summer's day in the park, more sunny than today. And I'm, you find me there and I'm looking very down and very despondent. And so you ask me, what's wrong? And I say, oh, this world is so dark and grey and shapeless. And this park is so blotchy and dirty and ugly. And I'm just ready to give up on ever coming outside again. There's just nothing to see here. And you are baffled, to put it politely. And taking a look around, you think to yourself, this, but this park is beautiful. It, it's full of lush green grass and uh, spring flowers blossom on the tree. It's incredible. You know, this, this is the best park in the whole city, okay? This is Page Park. Best park in the city. And so somewhat confused and unsure of what to say, you, uh, you look at me and think carefully and then it hits you. You can see what it is that's wrong. My glasses are caked with mud and filth, which happens often, I have to say. My glasses are caked with mud and filth. And so you see, there's nothing wrong with the park. It's, it's, it's as beautiful as ever. The problem is with me. My vision is impaired. My glasses are filthy and they need to be cleaned. There are times in our Christian lives, numerous times, when our vision gets impaired for all sorts of reasons. And at those times, we have to remember that the Bible hasn't lost an ounce of its inherent delightfulness. It is as beautiful and as powerful as ever. There's nothing more delightful that we could set before our eyes. It's simply that our hearts have become muddied, dull and unresponsive. And what we need in that moment is the Holy Spirit to help us see clearly once again. 
What we need to do in those moments is to ask the Holy Spirit to help us see the awesome treasure that is right there in front of us. Psalm 119 verse 18, the psalmist there prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And Ephesians 1 verse 18, Enlighten the eyes of my heart then I may know again the hope to which you have called me. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, but a prayer that we can pray for ourselves. And then having prayed that the Spirit would open our eyes again, we should just start reading. Trusting that the Word of God and the Spirit of God will in the proper time awaken our spiritual taste buds once again. If you've ever been dehydrated badly, you'll know there's a point where you lose your sense of thirst entirely. You get to a point where you don't feel like drinking anymore. But you must drink, especially when you've lost your sense of thirst. You, you have to wet your tongue and gradually awaken your thirst again by drinking. And then, you'll, then it will start to return. And then you'll drink some more and then you'll thirst some more. And before you know it, you begin to feel revived. When our hearts grow dull and our our, our, our eyes grow dull. We need more than ever to open the word and drink from it, praying that we might see and taste again what our hearts have forgotten, that the Lord is indeed oh so good. And the third and final obstacle I want to touch on briefly, very briefly this morning, is that of guilt. A feeling of guilt can keep us from this book. And it can do that for one of two reasons. The first might be that we have sinned in some way and we don't want to repent. And if we want to hold on to our sin or a particular sin, if we want to keep one foot in the kingdom of this world, we will increasingly try to avoid God's word. We won't want to hear it. If we don't want to live God's way, we shouldn't be surprised that we can't muster up the enthusiasm to open up our Bibles. John Bunyan is said to have once, uh, once said, Either this book will keep you from sin or your sin will keep you from this book. And so we do have to decide, which of these two people in Psalm 1 do I want to be? Who do I serve? Whose kingdom do I belong to? And, and, and there are times when we need to repent before we can hope to find true refreshment again here. But the second way a feeling of guilt can keep us from this book is much more subtle and, maybe, and I think much more common. Often it is that we're aware of some sin in our own life, some particular sin. We're repentant, we're sorry, we're battling it, but we're not sure that we really deserve to find genuine delight in God's word because of the raging battle that is going on. And so we can feel like we don't deserve to encounter and enjoy God here. We feel unworthy and that can keep us away. What we need to realise in those moments is this, that this book was expressly written to minister to the hearts of weary sinners in need of grace. That page in the front of the Bible where you get to write to and from and all of that, and I know it's meant to be if you give it as a gift, but maybe on the to line it should say, to those whose hearts are weary, weary of sin and in need of grace. In fact, if we don't come to this book aware of our need for grace, aware that we are great sinners in need of grace, it really doesn't have anything for us at all anyway. That is how we're to come. This book is a refuge for those who know their sin and who long to catch another sight of their saviour. 
Which brings us finally to the biggest question of all in Psalm 1. How can any of us really experience the blessing and happiness and security that's promised in this psalm when all of us on many occasions have walked in the way of the wicked and stood in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of scoffers? How is it that you and I, honestly, come on, how is it that you and I could be like trees planted by streams of water, fed and sustained in every season, when we don't delight in God's word perfectly, we don't delight in God, and we wrestle with sin every day. How can it be? Well, here's the answer, only one answer, because there is one man who did delight in this word perfectly and obey it completely. And this psalm really is first and foremost a description of him. Jesus is the truly blessed man described in Psalm 1. He and he alone perfectly delighted in the law of God and was pleased to obey it in every way. Jesus was the perfect tree who had eternal roots going down into fellowship with his father. And as Naomi reminded us of so wonderfully earlier on, he was willing to be cut off from those life-giving streams in order to save us. Christ allowed himself, the, the one truly blessed man, allowed himself to be uprooted and driven away like the chaff so that we might be planted into the riverbank. Jesus was suspended above the earth on a dead and cursed tree so that we might become risen trees with roots that go down forever into God's life-giving streams. And so it's because of Jesus and I hope we're not surprised by that this morning, it's because of Jesus and through faith in him that all of the blessedness and the eternal happiness of the man described in Psalm 1 belongs to every Christian by grace. And now by that same grace, we really can grow in our Bible delight. We can be nourished by its goodness no matter the seasons or circumstances that might await us this autumn. Just as a tree soaks up water and bears luscious fruit, we now, as sinners saved by the most incredible grace, we really can soak up God's word and bear fruit that honours and pleases him. We can say in fulfilment of Psalm 1, Oh, the blessedness, oh, the eternal happiness of the one who in Jesus has been given roots that go down into these living waters and whose growing delight day by day is in the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you this morning for the gift, first of all, of your word. Oh Lord, that you have entrusted us with something that that is more glorious and shines more brilliantly than all of the suns, the stars in the sky. Oh Lord, that we can hold this book in our hands and take it with us wherever we go. Oh Lord, that we can open its pages and hear you speak to us every day, in every situation, as often as we, as we look inside. Father, we are thank you for this treasure that is right there in front of us each day. But Lord, we also want to thank you this morning for the greatest treasure of all, the saviour that this book has led us to. For Christ, the word, the one who came and laid down his life for us so that, 
We could have new hearts so that we could be given new eyes so that we could see the, the, the beauty of the God who, has, who had made us, the glory of a life lived knowing you. Father, we pray, help us to grow in Bible delight. Help us, Lord, to rest in and rest on the grace that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And by that grace, may our eyes be open wider each day to see the riches of your word. May they supply us, Lord, sustain us in all and every circumstance. And may we bear fruit that brings glory to your name. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen.